Amos chapter 3, if you've got your Bible. Amos chapter 3. I want us to return to our study of this Old Testament minor prophet, the prophet Amos. And the emphasis in this book is on divine justice. Amos was a shepherd turned prophet, uh, not of his own choice. It was not something he just woke up one morning and decided to do, but it was the call of God that came into his life. And God commissioned him to be a prophet to God's people in the northern kingdom of Israel. And the message that Amos declared to the northern kingdom was a very important message. But it was not a very popular message. It was shocking. It was confrontational. And for nine chapters or so, God's word delivered through Amos is primarily directed against Israel. They were a people who had been spiritually blessed, but they had lost an understanding of what it meant to truly love their neighbors. Because they had exchanged the truth of God and the worship of God for the worship of idols, uh, there was a form of religion. Uh, they were religious, but there was no true righteousness. Their religion was just sort of a thin veneer uh, that looked good on the outside, but it was utterly void of power and experience. And they were not walking with God. And the evidence that they were not walking with God was the way that they were treating their fellow men. And so Amos, God raises him up as a prophet to cry out against the sin of God's people. And so really perhaps more than any other book of the Bible, uh, this book of Amos holds the people of God accountable for the way that they treat other people. And so Amos, he wrote in the 8th century, and here we are living in the 21st century A.D., Amos writes 800 years before the birth of Christ, but the message of Amos is so very relevant. And there's some very interesting parallels between the society and the issues that Amos addressed, and it really parallels many of the very same issues that we're dealing with even in our own time. His generation was marked out for material prosperity, and yet at the same time, it was also spiritually bankrupt. And because of that, uh, morals were in a free fall in Israelite society. There was a breakdown in their social relationships with one another. And Amos says it's because there had been a major breakdown in their relationship with God. The two greatest commands, Jesus said, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, really hang all the law and the prophets. Israel had not loved God, and the result of that, they were not loving their neighbor as they loved themselves. And by the way, if there is a breakdown often in our social relationships, more often than not, it can be uh, traced back to a spiritual breakdown in our relationship with God. And so the light of God's truth was being pushed out of Israel's national life and society was on the brink of collapse as a result. And so it's into that situation that God sends his servant with this message. And the message was intended to get the attention of God's people. It was a message of looming catastrophe. Coming judgment. Were God's people not to repent and turn from their sin, judgment was sure to come. 
And so what we really learn from the first few chapters here in Amos is that God considers sin in the life of his covenant people to be a very serious thing. That was the theme that we saw in chapter 2, and that's the very same theme that's carried over into this third chapter. So if you've got your Bible open there, let's begin reading verse number 1. The Bible says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. The two walk together unless they have agreed to meet. I like how the King James translates verse 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it's taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. I want to speak from this subject this morning. Hear this word. Hear this word. Notice there, both in verse number 1 as well as verse number 13, the emphasis is placed on the importance of hearing the word that the prophet is delivering from God. And so it underscores the importance of listening to this prophetic word of warning. You know, I can't help but think that at times we forget just how important it really is to listen. It's a lesson that we teach our children from the earliest ages. I remember when we were small, my grandmother, uh, she used to quote this little poem whenever we would talk and we weren't listening to her. She would stop what she was doing and she would say this. She would say, a wise old owl sat in an oak. The more he heard, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Why can't you be like that wise old bird? (laughs) Some of you have heard that before. But you know, failure to listen, I'm telling you, it comes at a high price, doesn't it? 
Who knows the many mistakes that have been made simply because of a failure to listen? There's a lady by the name of Diana Romero who wrote a book entitled The Business of Listening, but she gave this example on on just how expensive a mistake it can be to fail to listen. It was a $100,000 error that was caused by a dispatcher who routed a fleet of drivers to deliver building materials to the wrong state. The dispatcher overheard the city of Portland but stopped listening before he heard the state of Maine. And the result was that he sent eight trucks 3,000 miles in the wrong direction to Portland, Oregon. Folks, listen, failure to listen oftentimes comes at a very high price. Listening is very important. There's a reason that God gave us two ears and one mouth. He expects us to listen twice as much as we talk. So when we listen, what is it that we're doing? I'll tell you what you're doing in your relationships. Uh, You're telling other people that they're valuable. It's a way that you love another person by listening to that person. I'll tell you something else that listening does. It's a means of learning all of the facts. A lot of times we're so quick to jump to judgment before we really understand all of the facts. And that is increasingly becoming more of an issue in today's social media society when just every thought that a person has is instantaneously conveyed and out there for the world to see. And if we're not discerning, if we're not listening, we can assume that someone is speaking from a position of real knowledge when in reality they may be speaking from a place of ignorance because they don't have all the facts. They've not fully listened. Listening is extremely important, especially as it relates to the Word of God. Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, pay careful attention to how you hear. And he made that statement in the context of the parable of the sower. How a sower went out to sow his seed and some of the seed fell among hard ground. Some of the seed fell among the path or rocky ground. Some of the seed fell among thorns. But then some of the seed fell upon good ground. And the whole point of that parable was to illustrate the importance of listening to the Word of God. And so that's what God is saying here through the prophet Amos in this third chapter. Hear this Word that the Lord has spoken to you. In fact, you'll notice that chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5 begin in the same way with this same phrase. Hear this Word. It's careful listening that the prophet is calling for. And that word here that's used there in verse number one, it's an important Hebrew word that means to listen with the intention to obey. It's not just hearing for hearing's sake, but it's carefully listening so that one can obey the word that one hears. It involves intentionally studying something that's heard in order to obey what is said. So what is it that God's people really need to hear uh, here in this third chapter? Well, there's four important points. Uh, Number one, the peculiarity of God's people. They needed to be reminded of something about the peculiarity of God's people. Now, I'm not saying that God's people are weird, although that certainly might apply to some of us. But what I'm saying is that God's people are separate and distinct And that's really the point that's being driven home there in the first couple of verses. 
Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. That word against can also be translated about. And so if you read it that way, you'll see how God is reminding his covenant people of how they were peculiar, they were distinct from all other nations that surrounded them. They were God's own people. As such, they had been the privileged recipients of God's grace. God had chosen Israel as the vehicle through whom he would bring blessing into the world. But God's people had forgotten God's grace. Their status had become a thing of pride, which resulted in them taking their spiritual privileges for granted. We would say they got too big for their britches. They got to a point where they didn't think that a message of judgment really applied to them. Oh, that really applied to all the other nations that were out there, but we're God's special people, and so surely God's not going to judge us, and we can live however we so choose, and that's certainly not true. So Amos is reminding God's people that they were God's peculiar people. They were God's special people. They were God's spiritually privileged people. What are the privileges that they uniquely enjoyed as God's peculiar people? Well, notice first, election for a very special purpose. Election for God's own purposes. Uh, This is sort of implicit within that phrase, people of Israel. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. Implicit within that statement is that God chose Israel for a very specific purpose. And it goes all the way back to the initial covenant that God had established with Abraham. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, it was God in his grace who came to Abram in Ur of the Chaldees, and God's call said, listen, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So God is telling Abram there in Genesis 12 that he's going to be uniquely blessed so that he would be a blessing. Have you ever thought about the blessing that you've been given from God? Rather than that be something for you to just simply enjoy yourself, you ever thought about you being blessed for the express purpose of being a blessing to someone else. God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you. The one who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, I'm going to do something through you uh, in such a way, I'm going to work in such a way that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. That's the purpose that God had in mind as far as Abraham's election, his choice of Israel. That same covenant is reaffirmed with Abraham's son Isaac. It's also reaffirmed with Isaac's son Jacob, whom the Lord changed his name to Israel. And God chose Israel to be his people through whom he would reveal himself to the world and provide a savior who would accomplish his redemptive plan for Adam's race. And so the purpose in which Israel was specifically chosen, they were chosen to be a vehicle of blessing for the nations because it would be through this chosen people that God himself in the person of his own son would enter our world and accomplish God's redemptive plan. 
And by the way, you see how that plan is often attacked and opposed by the enemy and the enemies of God's people and ultimately Satan himself all throughout redemptive history. But aren't you glad that nothing is going to thwart the purposes and plans of our God? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So this privilege of God's peculiar people involved election for a very specific purpose. And then notice something else that the prophet says it involves, adoption into God's family. They were adopted into the special family of God. Verse one says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. The children of Israel had been adopted into the family of God. And in that way, they were separate, they were distinct, they had been given the law of God as a mark of that separation. God had done for them what he had done for no other nation on earth. In fact, uh, the Lord says this through Moses. Uh, If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy uh, chapter number 7, Verse number six, God says, you're a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. Now listen to this. Someone says, well, what was the basis of their choice? What was the basis of their adoption into the family of God? Was it because they were such a large, prosperous, wealthy nation? Is that why God chose them? No. Because verse 7 says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. There were other more powerful nations. I mean, at the time of their redemption from bondage, Egypt was the superpower of the day. Egypt was where it was at. But is that whom God chooses for his own special people? Adopted into his family? No. It wasn't because you were special in and of yourself. But verse 8 says, it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and has redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So they were elected for a special purpose, adopted into God's own special family, and then something else, they had been redeemed by God's grace from a former bondage. God in his power, by means of his outstretched arm, did for Israel what Israel could not do for itself. What did he do? He brought them out of their slavery in Egypt. They were in bondage to cruel oppressors. And yet God, in his mercy and in his grace, he pours out judgment on their captors and he brings out the captives and sets the captive free. That's what redemption is all about. It wasn't by their own hand. It wasn't their own clever ability that led to that redemption. It was God working on their behalf solely as a means of his own grace. And so that's why God says against this family, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Look at the end of verse number one there. I'm the one who did this for you. So Israel would not even be a nation. They wouldn't be in the land of their inheritance had it not been by God's own grace on their behalf. And that's something that they completely forgot, isn't it? Well, what's a fourth 
advantage that they had uh, as God's peculiar people. It was fellowship, intimacy in God's presence. They were blessed with intimate relationship with God. Uh, Verse 2 says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. So God is saying, I've received you into an intimate fellowship. That word known is a word that implies intimacy. It's a word that was used to describe the relationship between a husband and his wife. So in verses 1 and 2, you look at these spiritual privileges that were true of God's peculiar people, their election, adoption, redemption, their fellowship with God. All of this was true of God's covenant people in the Old Testament, which by the way, did you know that the same thing is true of the New Testament church? Paul precisely makes this point in uh, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9. Just as Israel was chosen in grace, so also have believers in Christ been chosen in grace. Israel had been adopted, so also is the church of Jesus Christ adopted into the family of God. Israel had been redeemed from bondage, so also have believers been redeemed from their bondage to sin. Aren't you grateful to God that you've been set free from your sin? Aren't you grateful that you've been, uh, your sins have been removed from you? As far as the east is from the west, so far hath, has he removed our transgressions from us. And now we live in close, personal, intimate fellowship with God. Intimacy with God is our inheritance, and all of this is what makes us peculiar as God's redeemed people. Now listen, all of this is important because this is really going to serve as sort of a springboard for this message of judgment that Amos is going to declare. You know that to whom much is given, much is required. Of all the people on earth who should have been the most grateful and humble and worshipful, selfless in their relationships, sacrificial, generous, forgiving in their dealings with other people, Israel ought to have been that. But instead, they were taking advantage of one another. The powerful were exploiting the poor. There had been an epic breakdown in their social order as a nation, and it all stemmed from the fact that they forgot what it meant to be God's peculiar people. And so Amos says, y'all better hear this word. You better listen carefully to this word that the Lord is declaring to you. Now, notice the second thing. They need to pay attention because they were God's peculiar people, but they needed to hear this word because this word had to deal with the accountability of God's own people. They were accountable to God. As God's people, they were accountable to God. Notice uh, that statement there in verse number two. You only have I known of all the families of the earth Now, this may seem somewhat strange, but notice the last statement of verse 2. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Despite the fact that you've enjoyed all of these spiritual privileges as a means of my grace, God is saying, in light of that, because you've you've forgotten that, you've turned your back on that, you've taken it uh, for granted, I'm going to punish you for all your iniquities. In other words, God is saying, I'm not going to have any spoiled children. You realize that God doesn't tolerate spoiled children? I had a preacher one time, I used to make this statement. He said, God will take you to the woodshed. 
You know what I'm talking about, don't you? If you've ever been taken to the woodshed growing up. It's the idea that God's going to bring formative discipline to the one who truly belongs to him. If you're truly saved, you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is your Savior. He's your Master. He's your Lord. You know that discipline is true. A heavenly Father disciplines his own. And the writer of Hebrews makes this statement in the New Testament that if we are without discipline, then we're proven to be illegitimate. That is, any person who names the name of Christ, but it's obvious they're living in a way that's contrary to the way of Christ and there's no deep conviction over that, it's obvious that they really don't know Christ. Because if you know God, the discipline of God is going to be on your life. So God is holding his people accountable, and that's what the prophet is saying here. The reality was that their spiritual blessing demanded a higher level of accountability. Covenant blessing meant that there was covenant obligation. And so for what exactly is God going to hold his people accountable? Well, to begin with, there was a neglected walk. God's going to hold them accountable for their neglected walk. Verse 3, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Can two walk together except they are agreed? So implicit within this statement is this expressed desire of God to walk with his covenant people, but God's people had neglected their responsibility. You can't walk with someone unless you're both headed in the same direction. And neither can you walk with someone unless you're walking at the same pace. Nor can you walk with a person if you're not walking along the same pathway. And so Israel had been proudly going their own way apart from God. They had made all this progress as a nation, but it was all down the wrong road. And what point is it to make progress if you're progressing down the wrong road? I can't remember who it was I heard. It may have been David Jeremiah was talking about he and his wife they were driving across the country, and um, they got up one morning, early one morning, because they wanted to get on the road somewhere in the middle part of the country. They left before it was, I mean, it was still dark when they left their hotel. And they'd been driving for some time down the interstate when the sun began to come up, and he said to his wife, he said, the sun's coming up in the wrong direction. <laughs> Not that the sun was coming up really in the wrong direction, it's the fact that they were driving in the wrong direction. And so they had to make up for lost time, they had to get off the nearest on-ramp, exit ramp, and get back on going the right direction. I don't wanna make progress down the wrong road. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lose his soul? That's what Jesus said. And men, on this Father's Day, let me speak to you directly here for just a second. What does it really profit if you gain the whole world, if you make a really good living at what you do, if you push your children to get into the right colleges, if you burn both ends of the candle in the process, If you worship at the altar, the idolatrous altar of the sports world, you make all this progress in all these other areas of your life, education, 
athleticism, your financial portfolio? What point does it make to make all this progress if it's all on the wrong road? Can two walk together except they be in agreement? So here you have a prophet of God who really is serving as a rebuke to his generation because Amos is a guy who's walking with God and the result is a message to be delivered to his generation. God gave him a word. Amos sought the heart of God. And so the effectiveness then of his ministry was not his credential was not his gifting, was not his personality, none of that. The secret to his life was the fact that he was walking with God, and yet that same invitation was extended to all of God's people. Walk with God. Walk with God. The psalmist said that the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show him his covenant. Robert Murray McShane said that it's not great talents that God blesses so much as it is great likeness to Jesus. When you walk with God, the Spirit of God works to conform you and make you more like the Son of God. And the fact of the matter is, we become like the company we keep. You can't help but become like the company that you keep. And so when you spend time Walking with God in an individual relationship with God, the Spirit of God conforms you to the image of the Son of God. So am I walking with God? That's a very appropriate question to ask ourselves. Am I walking with God? What does that mean? John talks about walking in the light. 1 John 1, 7. That means walking with God means we walk in the truth, not error. Galatians 5.16 says we're to walk in the spirit and we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. It means we rely upon the fullness of God rather than our own strength. Ephesians 5.15 says we're to to walk in wisdom. We're to walk circumspectly. You you study your Bible, there's several statements that are made, all kinds of references that have something to say about what it means to walk with God. Amos 3.3 is one of those, and it teaches us that to walk with God, it's simply to be in agreement with God. Can two walk together except they are in agreement? You can't walk with someone with whom you are in disagreement. And so what it means is that this person is no longer making excuses for their behavior. They're not arguing with the Spirit of God. Oftentimes we don't get what we want and if we're not careful we can find ourselves arguing with the Spirit of God when the invitation is walk with God. Walk with me, God says. Walk with me. So Israel had neglected this walk and God was holding them accountable for it. And then notice something else. They're being held accountable for a disobeyed word. You read verse four all the way down through verse number eight. In fact, if you include the question that's asked in verse 3, there are nine questions in a row that God asks his people. Nine questions. And it's a rhetorical device that's intended to drive home this point that God is giving a word of warning before the judgment ever comes. The lion roars before it devours its prey. 
A trap is set before it's sprung by a bird that falls into it. A trumpet is blown in the city as a warning before the city is ever attacked. And again, the point is that God gives sufficient warning before his judgment ever comes. Aren't you glad that our God is a patient God? He's long-suffering, slow to anger. He doesn't work to try to catch his people off guard or unaware, but he is, he's patient And he raises up the prophet, and through that prophet, he issues his word of warning to his people. Verse 7, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. That's what he had done through Amos. He had revealed what was coming. Amos was to sound the alarm. God's people were to hear the word that they might repent and not disobey. So they're held accountable for a disobeyed word. Something else they're held accountable for is a compromised witness. You look at verse number nine. God says, proclaim to the the strongholds in Ashdod and the strongholds in the land of Egypt. These were Israel's neighbors. These were the Philistines and the Egyptians. God's saying, call the pagan nations together as a witness against my people. Tell them to assemble themselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. In other words, the invitation was extended to foreign nations to look at how Israel had fallen. And God's reminding his covenant people that their witness to the nations had been compromised. Remember, God intended for his people to be a light to the nations, but the way that they had disobeyed his word and were treating one another, it served as a compromised witness. The nations that didn't know God were looking at Israel and they were scratching their head and they were saying, I thought they were supposed to be different. Their sin had become so great that it appalled the pagan nations that surrounded them. Verse 10, God says, my people don't know how to do right. And isn't that a sad indictment? How there was an absence of righteousness followed up by a loss of spiritual appetite. God's people had become so enamored with material things that they forfeited their spiritual blessings. And because there was no personal, experiential knowledge of God, it resulted in failure as far as knowing how to do right. The idea is that they made their decisions on the basis of their material benefit rather than their spiritual welfare. They'd bought into this attitude that was a me-first mentality. And let me tell you, that me-first mentality is true of our generation. If it benefits me... I'll be involved. And I'll tell you what we've done. We've taken this me first mentality and we've imported it into the church. I'll come if it benefits me. I'll serve if it benefits me. But New New Testament Christianity knows nothing of this me first mentality that's so true of our generation. So that's a strong word. And the tragedy was that this me first mentality undermined their witness to the nations. And God had intended for things to be completely different. One more thing that God's going to hold his people accountable for is their ritualized worship. You get on down to verse 13 and notice how God's speaking against the altars of Bethel. 
The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. Their false religious system that was true of the northern kingdom, uh, altars that had been built in Bethel. Bethel was the city where King Jeroboam had made those two golden calves. He had made religion a matter of personal convenience and he, he, he made that popular throughout his kingdom. It was really a false religion intended to consolidate his power and provide the people with personal convenience, but it was all void of divine revelation. And yet the sad thing is, is that it had been done in the name of God. These Israelites were going to Bethel and they were worshiping these golden shrines, but they were doing so in the name of the God of Israel. They were giving lip service to the God of Israel while completely denying the way that God had revealed he was to be worshiped in the first place. It was religion that had become detached from the authority and the sufficiency of the Bible. That's what it was. And Paul says in the New Testament that the same thing is going to happen in the latter times. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, to the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. In other words, the closer we get to the return of Jesus, the more this kind of thing will happen. People will throw around the same kind of vocabulary that the church of Jesus Christ uses. They'll use the same words, but then they'll have different definitions that they will attach to those words, and there'll be a false religion that will be in the name of Jesus, but let me tell you, it won't be according to the revelation of Jesus. It won't be scriptural. It won't be the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. So God's people ought to have known better. And that's the point of the prophet's message here. And God's holding his people accountable. They needed to hear this word, a matter of their distinction as God's people, their accountability of God's people. One final thing that I would mention is this, an opportunity for God's people. You go back and you read this, really in verse 2, uh, verse 14, verse 15. Notice, notice the language that is being used here in the prophet's message. God says, I will punish you, but he doesn't yet say, I have. Notice he says there in verse number 14, I will punish the altars of Bethel, but he doesn't say, I have. Verse 15, I will strike the winter house, the summer house, but he doesn't yet say, I have. The idea is that there was still a window of opportunity that was open for God's people to repent and to return to the Lord. And folks, right there you see the grace of God. Someone has well said that there is grace in God's growl. The lion was roaring, but the lion had not yet devoured. There still was a time of opportunity. The judgment was coming, but it had not yet come. God's people had time to repent, to change their ways, to humble themselves before God, to return to their first love. Just like Jesus tells the church at Ephesus. You remember the church of Ephesus? They looked like a great church. Things were going well there at the church of Ephesus, but Jesus said, let me tell you something. You've left your first love, and I have this against you. 
And so there's a word of warning that the Lord of the church gives to his people. You've left your first love, so what you need to do, Jesus says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Lest you think that God's discipline only applies to his Old Testament people, let me tell you, his discipline applies to his New Testament people too. And Jesus said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he will build this local expression of his church if we're not willing to humble ourselves and walk with him in the process. He says if you don't return to your first love, you don't repent. And do the works that you did at the first, I'll remove your lampstand from its place. And I can't help but think that the church in the West that's been blessed with so much material resource. We've got tools that our ancestors couldn't even dream of having that we could use for the advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And yet you see where really revivals are happening around the world. They're happening in third world contexts. Nations where persecution and where there's a real steep price to pay for being a follower of Jesus. Well, all the while, we tend to be at ease in Zion here in the West. And let me tell you, the message of Amos applies to us. I read where C.T. Studd was on furlough, a great missionary. He was a cricket player turned missionary. Spent time in China, India, and then I believe it was the Congo but he was on furlough on one occasion and he decided to go to the Keswick Convention. And F.B. Meyer was the speaker at the convention. And in one of the sessions, C.T. Studd was asked to come to the platform and just briefly give an impromptu report on his mission work in Africa. Well, as he did, the place came unglued, the Spirit of God moved in a powerful way there was a sense of God's presence that just saturated the atmosphere of the place. There was a spirit of brokenness all over the congregation as people began to weep. And when F.B. Meyer, the great preacher, expositor, orator, when he got up to preach, he didn't know what to do. He could barely get through his message, and after it was all said and done, he asked C.T. Studd what had happened when he gave his brief report. Why had his testimony been baptized with so much spiritual power? And here's what the missionary said to that eminent preacher. He said, have you given all of the keys of your life to Jesus Christ? In other words, just like the keys to your house, every individual room in that house have you given every single compartment, every secret place of your heart to Christ that he might fill it? F.B. Meyer came to realize that he had not done that. And so that very evening he went home where he got alone with God. In an attitude of brokenness, he got down on his knees. He began to give the keys one by one over to Jesus in his life. He gave the Lord the key of his family. He gave the Lord the key of his possessions. 
He gave the Lord the key of his health and the key of his future and things that he often found himself so worried about. And then, by his own admission, one final key that he admitted was the hardest for him to give up. You want to know what it was? It was the key of his reputation. His popularity as a preacher. The fact that he so wanted to just be known as a mighty pulpiteer. That was the one key that he was holding on to with control. And in that moment of crisis, God impressed upon his heart. It's all or it's nothing. It's all or it's nothing. And I want to ask you the same question this morning. Have you given over all of the keys to the master of the house? Let's stand for prayer this morning. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Oh, how I imagine that there's some of us here this morning who are desperately holding on to some things things that we need to let go of. Is your life in agreement with God? Can two walk together except they be in agreement? And the message of the prophet Amos, a word that we need to hear is this, you can't successfully run from God. We can't run from God, but you know what we can do? We can run to God. We can run to him. And we can hand the keys over to him in total submission. Do you know Christ is your savior? Is he truly the Lord and master of your life? If not, why not surrender the keys to him this morning and say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I believe that you died for me on the cross and that you rose again from the dead. And I confess my need for you. And in faith, I trust you as my Savior. Save me, Lord Jesus. This I pray. We're going to sing here in just a moment. I'm going to invite you to come if you need to be saved. You can find me even after the service is over, and I'd love to pray with you further. Husbands, fathers, does Christ have all the keys in your life? Have you given him the key of your thought life? Have you given him the key of your marriage? Your career? The things that you so, are so proud of. Does he have all the keys? Lord, may we hear this word and listen. God, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning. Oh God, take this word. May it produce fruit in our lives. Bring us to a point of brokenness, Lord, and repentance and faith. Love for you above all things. And love for one another. And God, the world is watching. The world is watching. Have your way in our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen.